Well, I am going to attempt to do something this morning that some of you are going to think is quite amazing, and that I'm going to try to deliver a shorter message. Um, the passage that we're in this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 4, is one of the shortest ones in Samuel, so there's that. Uh, but also this week, I was, I was looking back through old sermon notes, and in the four and a half years that I've been the preaching team lead for what was Apex Xenia, now uh, New Community, uh, I've noticed that the, the messages have gradually gotten longer and longer and longer and longer. And so, um, just as a gift this morning, we're going for five minutes, five minutes shorter. That's, that's a lofty goal. Here we go. Um, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. Uh, years ago, there was a comedian named Bill Ingvall who did a, a comedy routine called Here's Your Sign. Um, and, and some of you may remember that if you're over 40, like me. Um, but uh, the, whole, uh, the whole comedy routine was, was basically it was about this idea that people say things that aren't so bright and do things that aren't so bright. And uh, if, if people who had a tendency to say or do things that weren't very smart, if they would just wear a sign, that would be beneficial to, to the rest of, of the universe. But uh, he gives you know, example after example of, of what this looks like. Maybe it's a, a, a moving truck in your driveway, and people see you taking out furniture and taking out boxes and putting in a moving truck, and so somebody asks you, are you moving? Right? And, and his response, well, you know, no, I just like to pack up my stuff from time to time, drive it around the neighborhood, and here's your sign. Um, and, and another example would be, you know, somebody sees you changing a flat tire. You got a flat? Right. Here's your sign. Well, um, not to uh, be too prideful himself, he, he actually um, he, he tells a story of, of something that he did. Uh, one day he, he looked out the window, he saw his son playing with a neighbor kid, and he saw his son hit the neighbor kid, and so he goes out to his son, and he smacks him on the back of the head and says, we don't hit. And his son looked up at him, of course, and said, you know, here's your sign. But the reality is, is um, sometimes the ways that we execute justice is kind of silly. The, the way that, um, that, that we uh, try to, to, to execute justice doesn't, doesn't really make any sense sometimes. The idea that we would do to somebody what they had done to somebody else as punishment, if you think about it, um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, this morning, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 4, and what we're headed towards in this book is this, the, the pinnacle of the nation of Israel in its golden age. The, the best that Israel ever gets under this king named David. And Israelites and, and Jewish people will we'll look back and continually look back on this time in Israel's history as the best it ever was. That this is God's ideal society. This is the way things should be. This is, this is a, 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 a reality of shalom where, where, where people have peace with one another and with God. And this is what society is supposed to be like. But if we take a close look at this, what we find out is if it does get good, it doesn't last very long. And, and that, that it, if there's going to be a reality of shalom, if there's going to be a perfect society, if there's going to be this, the idealistic reality or real world that which we're going to live in, then justice has to be a part of that, and, and justice has to be executed equitably, righteously, perfectly. And, 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 and the lie that the passage that we're in this morning sort of brings to the surface is that we can, as human beings handle justice, that we can create a world in which justice reigns perfectly in every instance and in every case, we can, by our own strength and power, create that sort of idyllic society. That's the lie that this thing sort of brings to the surface, 
and, uh, and addresses this morning. So, 2 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to dive right in. Verse 1, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. If you were here last week, we talked about the fact there's, there's this guy named Abner, and he was Saul's commanding general. Uh, Saul dies, and so uh, Abner takes Ishbosheth, his uh, Saul's fourth son, and he makes him king. He installs him as king because he can use him. He can, he can be a puppet for Abner. Abner can sort of reign through him and have, have control through him. Well, um, uh, Ishbosheth, he, he insults Abner. He accuses him of, of, of something, and, and because he is insulted, uh, Abner essentially says, well, I'm going to take all the clout and the, 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 the pull that I have. I'm going to take all these religious or, or tribal leaders, and we're going to go over to David's side. David was king by divine right. Ishbosheth was king by hereditary right. There was a civil war, and this ends when Abner says, I'm going to go and defect to David's side. Well, he does. He meets with David, and then in walks Joab, and Joab is David's commanding general. And Joab is, he wants vengeance because Abner killed his brother, and he's worried about losing his place. If Abner defects, what, what position of power and authority will David give Abner? Will, will, will he take Joab's spot? And so out of a desire for vengeance and out of fear of losing control, Joab meets Abner in the city gate and murders him. And what we saw from that is David doesn't execute Joab. He shames him. He, he, he sort of uh, makes him walk in front of, uh, of uh, Abner's uh, uh, funeral buyer in, in, in this processional. He, he shames him. He, he curses him. But he does not execute Joab. He lets him stay in his position of power and authority. And that is meant to contrast what we're going to be looking at today. So Abner's dead. Ishbosheth is, is his, his courage is failing him. He is he's seeing his, his, uh, his, his kingdom uh, sinking. Verse 2. Now Saul's sons had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Bena and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin, from Beeroth. From Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gatame and have been sojourners there to this day. Now, um, the author of, of 2 Samuel is giving us more information than we need for this passage. He's giving us some information that comes in handy when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 21. But we're introduced to these two, two characters. They're leaders under Ishbosheth of, of raiding bands. They're supposed to work for Ishbosheth, but they're from the Beerothites, they're Barathites. Uh, these are uh, another, another name for a group of people called the Gibeonites. These were not Israelites. These were people who were, who were existed in the land before Israel got there. And we go back into Israel's history way before this, and there was a group of Gibeonites who came to, um, to, to the Israelite leaders. They saw that God was giving them uh, you know, power, and they're, they're, they're destroying cities like Jericho and Ai, and they're conquering peoples. And these Gibeonites know that God has given this land into their hands, and they're on the chopping block. And so they go to the leaders of Israel and say, make a treaty with us. The only thing is, is they dressed up like they were from really far away, when in fact they lived right there in their midst. Make a treaty with us. And the Israelites, it says it doesn't, uh, they say they didn't consult God, so they make a treaty with them. Then they find out that the Gibeonites exist right there. But because they make this treaty, God holds them to it and doesn't allow them to be destroyed. So uh, the tribe of Benjamin is a lot of the territory which the Gibeonites live. And over time, the Gibeonites and the Benjaminites uh, sort of identify with one another, right? We're going to see this much later on in chapter 21. So just store that away. Not really pertinent for today. Back to the passage. In, in verse 4, uh, the author gives us sort of this parenthetical statement. We get, it, we get to hear about a new character. 
Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, this character is introduced to us. He's not introduced to David yet. That's going to happen later. But what we're meant to understand from this is that after Ishbosheth, in terms of hereditary right to the throne, there's one more. A grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan. The problem is, because he's crippled in his feet, no one would ever accept him as king. Right? So, the line ends with Ishbosheth. He's the last one. That's what the author is pointing out. Verse 5. Now the sons of Ramon the Barathite, Rechab and Bena, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bena, his brother, escaped. So this is sort of a, a summary statement, because it's a little bit of information. Now it's repeated and more information is added. Verse 7. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. So this is what we would call murder in the first degree. Right? This is murder. It is, it is premeditated. It is, it is intentional killing. It, it is malice aforethought. This is first degree murder. These guys knowingly go into Ishbosheth's house in order to kill him. They strike him in the stomach, and then they behead him. And then they take the head as a trophy, and they travel all night to give it to David because they think that what they're bringing him is, is, is something that he wants. They think that this is good news. And, and they declare to him, basically, God has avenged you through us. We were doing God's work when we murdered this man in his sleep and beheaded him. And we're bringing this to you. This is good news for you. This is good news for your kingdom. Saul, who sought your life, this is the end of Saul. There's, after Saul, there's no more. There's another guy named Mephibosheth, but he won't reign and rule. This is the end. And, and God used us to do his work to avenge. And, and they expect to get a reward from David, but that's not what they get. Verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Bena, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Barathite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more? When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So uh, David is referring back to what happened in chapter 1. and He's saying, somebody thought they were bringing me good news. They came from the battlefield where Saul had died. They brought me his crown. They told me, I killed Saul. And they thought they were telling me good news. They were wrong. See, Saul, David recognized, was put into his position by God. He was God's anointed one, and it was up to God to remove him. David trusts that God would do that. So when somebody comes and says, I killed Saul, he has him put to death. Now, we know from how 1 Samuel ends that Saul, uh, he wasn't killed by this guy, this Amalekite that we see in chapter 1. He actually uh, commits suicide. He's, he 
mortally wounded, and in order to keep himself from falling into enemy hands, he falls on his own sword. But here's a guy who, who, who wants to claim credit for it. He thinks he's going to be rewarded for it, and, and he says he kills Saul. Instead, he himself gets killed. Okay? This is what, what David is referring to. And, and now he's saying, look, you're, you've done basically the same thing to Ishbosheth. More is going to happen to you. Now, where uh, David looked at Saul and, and knew that he was God's anointed, um, David doesn't think Ishbosheth was God's anointed. Uh, he, he sees him as king by hereditary right, but he does call him a righteous man. He was innocent. He did not deserve to die this way. This was murder, and murder is not good news. Now, um, the, the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament translates the word good news there as euangelizo, which is the same word that's used in the New Testament for the gospel, right? For the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, right? Uh, what David is saying here, this isn't gospel good news. This isn't good news to me. In fact, murder is never good news, with one exception, and we'll get to that later. So when we look at 2 Samuel, in the first 11 chapters, we see four murders. This is a bloody book. Isn't that so far? Four murders. The first one, the Amalekite says he kills Saul. The second one, Joab murders Abner. Uh, we notice that, that the first guy, he got killed. He got executed by David. Joab doesn't get executed by David. Then the third murder, Ishbosheth, uh, these guys do get executed by David, but the fourth murder, well, that's where David actually has somebody murdered in chapter 11, Uriah. And of course, David doesn't get executed. And, and what we see when we, we look at this in, in, in 2 Samuel is we see at least four things. One, uh, David doesn't know how to hand out the death sentence equitably. Right? David doesn't deal justice equitably to everyone. He makes some exceptions here and there. Secondly, uh, he doesn't hold a trial. He doesn't invite anybody else into his decisions regards to, to the fate of these individuals. Thirdly, he doesn't even consult God. He doesn't ask God, what should I do with this Amalekite, or what should I do with Joab, or what should I do with Rechab and Bain, or what should I do? He doesn't ask God. Lastly, what he does with Rechab and Bain is he, after he kills them, he has their hands and feet cut off and hung up. Their bodies hung up, and this is a shameful thing. It's to shame the, 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 the criminals. Um, but, but what he's essentially saying through this is, this is what happens to murderers in my kingdom. Is that what happens to every murderer in his kingdom? You see, if, if we look at Israel under King David and say, this is the best it gets, this is the golden age, like this is the kingdom that all kingdoms are supposed to look like, then then what we have is something that falls so short of what we actually need. This is not the ideal. This is, this is not the, the perfect kingdom. This is not shalom. This is not unity, peace among men and peace with God. This is not the way things should be. And, and if we have this idea that we can make it so, like we can fix it, we can create kingdoms where, where this happens, where people find uh, true justice and we live that out, then we're lying to ourselves. Not, not even, the, and arguably, one of the best of us, David, could establish a kingdom like that. So let's take a look back, and, and let's look at what, what we see in the Old Testament that leads up to 2 Samuel. Genesis 1, we see that God does create that perfect society. Right? That, that perfect reality, that perfect 
place and time where people were unified with each other and they were unified with God, the Garden of Eden. And, and just a couple of chapters into it, it it's, it's wrecked. And our first parents are tempted to believe that they could reach out and take hold of what? Fruit from the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and the promise was, if you reach out and you take that, your eyes will be open and you will see things like God sees things. You will be like God, being able to discern good and evil. And the, and the truth is, is when that happens, when they reached out and they took that fruit, their eyes were opened, but they were open to their own shame and guilt. And everything changes. Sin and death enter our reality. But you see, from the very beginning, the responsibility over what is good and what is evil and discerning and judging and all of that, that was never meant to be a human responsibility. But we reached out and we took it. What happens in the very next chapter? The first murder. Cain rises up, kills his brother Abel. And what does God do in response to that? Well, he doesn't do to Cain what Cain did to Abel. He doesn't kill him. In fact, he does punish him, and, and, and Cain has, he shows no sign of remorse. And all I can think about is the, the, the horrible punishment that he's receiving. He says uh, this, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Not only does God not give Cain what Cain gave to Abel, he doesn't kill him, he marks him. He lets him go, he preserves him, and then this way saves him. Why? Not because he deserves it. But more than that, he says, if anybody hurts you, I'll pour out a judgment seven times what they do to you. Is that equitable? Why did God do that? You see, this is how God responded to the crime. Then two chapters later, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Humanity grew in its, in its violence towards one another, destructive towards one another, just evil all the time. And God saw this and it grieved him. And so he decided he was going to start over. He chose one man, Noah and his family, and there was the flood. And we read all about that. But after the flood subsides... A new law is given. And we read this. Whoever takes a human life, I'm sorry, uh, verse uh, five and six, okay. And for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Noah is reminded that human life has value because God has given it value. It bears his image. Unlike any other created thing, humanity is meant to reflect what God is like, and as a result, it has this value, and this value is seen in the blood that runs through our veins. And so if you were to take uh, a man's life and you were to shed his blood, then according to this, your blood should be shed. This is the new law, right? We weren't make, meant to have this responsibility, but we took it. And God, in his response to Cain's murder, he didn't murder him. And then he sends this flood, and then he makes this rule, and he, and, he, and he puts judgment into the hands of human beings. It's more clarified in Leviticus 24 where it says this, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, 
as he has done it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. And you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. God is putting the responsibility of judging one another's crimes in human hands. You shed man's blood, your blood will be shed. That's what God says. And the question is, is is this the rule that makes everything right? Will this create shalom? Will this responsibility, will this create the idyllic kingdom that we long for? Will this make everything right? The truth is, God didn't give it to make everything right. He gave it to show us what we need to make everything right. See, we get to 2 Samuel chapter 4, and we see how David, the best king that ever lived, ruled and reigned. And did he execute justice perfectly? No. Because this isn't something that we were meant to wield. We can't do it perfectly. We can't do it righteously in every instance. We can't measure out justice proportionately without too much or too little. We can't do it. You see, in order for us to have that society, that shalom reality, that that perfect kingdom, three things need to happen that we can't make happen. First, we can't righteously judge. Across the board, Equitably, in every situation, you cannot trust humanity to perfectly judge everything rightly. We can't do it. Secondly, let's say for a moment we could. Let's say we could, we could possibly uh, find a way to execute justice proportionately and perfectly in every situation that happens. Let's say we could do that. What we also can't do is we can't change the criminal. We may be able to punish the criminal, but we can't rehabilitate the criminal. Yeah, we may send them to jail. We may be able to do things that modify that person's behavior, but we cannot change the heart of a criminal. We can't change our own hearts. We can't change the heart. And see, that's the thing that needs... If we're going to have a shalom reality, if we're going to have a perfect kingdom, then, then the heart of a person needs to be rehabilitated. The fall needs to be undone in us. We need to be redeemed. Thirdly, let's say we are successful at righteously judging, and we're successful at finding a way to redeem people and rehabilitate people, what we can't do is restore people. You can take a life, but you can't give back a life. You can't raise somebody from the dead. You can't undo the crime that was committed. And if we're going to have the perfect reality, then then the crimes themselves, the pain, the loss, the, the death, it has to be undone. We need someone to restore it. Righteous judge, perfect redeemer absolute restorer. And we can't be that. We can't do that. And see, David knew it too. That's why he wrote Psalm 103, where he says this, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Look at this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. In other words, he doesn't do to us what we've done to others. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. David knew he wasn't the king that could rule righteously. He couldn't redeem and he couldn't restore, but he knew the one who could. Remember, David at his, at his worst, he points us to our great need for Jesus. But at his best, he points us to what Jesus is like points us to Jesus here. There is a better king. See, 2 Samuel, that's what it's about. It's about pointing us to a better king. Any of you um, have kids that are going through the life stage or have been through the life stage I like to call, I know dad? It's like, the, that's the, the thing that comes out of their mouth like 90% of the time. I know dad. Or it might be for you, it might be I know mom. Right? You, they, they want a certain responsibility. They want to be able to do something, right? And you know they're not ready for that responsibility yet. And you try to, you try to explain, you try to teach, you try to coach. I know, Dad. I've got this. I don't need your help. And it's only when uh, they, you, you sort of let them have that responsibility do they find out that through failure, they break things. Things get broken, and it's only then are they willing to look at you and say, okay, I need help. The responsibility for judging, for, for discerning good and evil, for, for carrying out justice. This is a responsibility we weren't meant to have, but God put it in our hands so that we would see how much we need him. To believe this lie that we can do this, that we can overcome this, that we can become better, and that we can wield this thing with, without, with absolute perfection, it, it's just a lie. And the evidence of this is not hard to find. We have 2 Samuel in order to show us that we need a better king. But the truth is, is in the culture all around us. We can look at our own judicial system. Take a hard look at our own judicial system or judicial systems around the world, and you find that we make two horrible errors. One, we have a bunch of wrongful convictions and secondly, wrongful exoneration. In other words, we condemn the wrong people and we set free the wrong people. Wrongful convictions. According to one study, in the United States every year, approximately 10,000 people are wrongly convicted of a crime. Every year. And, and they chalk this up to six different things. Um, either uh, misidentity of a, of a perpetrator by a witness, um, faulty forensic analysis, false uh, confessions by suspects, people actually falsely confess to crimes they didn't commit, perjury from witnesses, people taking the stand and just outright lying, uh, misconduct from authorities, inadequate defenses for suspects. But, but all of this adds up to the fact that we punish people for things they didn't do. Now, as much as that happens, on the other side of that coin, it's far worse. And we exonerate people. We let people go who should be convicted. According to one study, for every 1,000 sexual assaults in this country, only 300 are reported. So two-thirds of all sexual assaults in this country never even reached the ears of the authorities, never dealt with. When it comes to um, violent crime, and violent crime is crime that um, doesn't end in, in, in the death of somebody, not, not murder or uh, non-negligent homicide. We'll talk about that in a second. But nonviolent crime, less than half of nonviolent crimes 
are ever cleared, meaning they ever reach a point where somebody's actually arrested, let alone convicted. Less than half of violent crimes are actually solved. Third, when it comes to murder and non-negligent homicide, 54.4% are actually cleared, actually lead to an arrest. Again, not a conviction, just an arrest. And our judicial system is probably one of the better ones on the planet. As human beings, the idea that we can execute justice fairly and righteously, and in so doing, create this world of peace and shalom that we long for, is just a lie. We need a better king. And that's what 2 Samuel is about. It's about pointing at us to a better king. But specifically, we need a better judge, a more righteous judge who can actually punish rightly, fairly, and we need a righteous redeemer. We need somebody who can actually change the heart of human beings. And we need a restorer. We need somebody that can undo what we've done. We have that in Jesus. We, we have that in Jesus, that, that the king left his throne and he took on flesh and he came to us and he lived this righteous life. We cannot uh, convict or find fault in Jesus for, for any crime against man or against God. Perfect, righteous life. And he lives that life on our behalf to go to the cross and make an exchange for us. And he imputes that righteous life to you and he takes on his, your sinful life on him. And there at the cross, God doesn't say, well, let's just forget about the whole thing. Let's just slide these sins underneath the rug. Let's just pretend like it didn't happen. No, God punishes sin at the cross. You cannot have justice without actually dealing with the crimes. And God deals with the crimes on Jesus at the cross. And Jesus pays perfectly. Justice is met perfectly. He is that righteous judge. But more than that, at the cross we find he's able to change us. That if we would embrace him and embrace what he's done for us and he sends his spirit to live inside of us, then the power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you and you can overcome the power of sin. In other words, you can be redeemed. You can be changed. You can be transformed from the inside out. And you can undergo this process of sanctification where day by day, minute by minute, you begin to look more and more and more like Jesus. He doesn't just rehabilitate us. He doesn't just change our behavior. He changes our hearts. He transforms us. Only he can do that. And what's more than that, at the resurrection, Jesus becomes the firstborn of the dead. And so at his return, all those who are dead in Christ rise. You see, he can restore all the things that we've broken, all the things that we've, we've, we've killed and, and messed up, he puts back together. He can restore. We have a better king that is righteous judge and righteous redeemer, perfect, perfect restorer. Have that in Jesus. See, the, the, the point of 2 Samuel 4 is, is not to say how great David was. Maybe not even how, how awful he was. The point is to show that we need a better king. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this? Well, first, faith. Faith. We have a hope that people don't have because of what Jesus has done. And, and it's hope based on what Jesus has done in the past that points us to what he's going to do in the future. 
we, we have a hope. Um, you ever talk to somebody who maybe work, uh, works in, in social work or in law enforcement or, or people who spend their, their work, their day in and day out dealing with, um, with either poverty alleviation or they're dealing with um, uh, domestic violence or uh, drug overdoses, things of that nature. You ever, you ever talk to somebody? I have a friend who's, who has a job like that. Never ask them the question, what's the solution? As day in and day out, you, you confront this problem. What's, what's going to fix this? When you look at Xenia, what, what is going to solve the homeless problem? What is going to solve our drug problem? Xenia's got a little bit of a drug problem. What is going to solve the domestic violence? What's, what's going to solve the problems within the home? What, where's, what's going to fix this? And if, and if they're a Christian, hopefully they, they say Jesus. But, but what I found that for people who don't have a relationship with Jesus, that there's, there's two responses. The first is, well, we're going to get better. We're, through technology, through time, uh, through, through the, the passing of the right kind of laws, uh, we eventually will figure this out. All right? And I'll be honest with you, that is an extreme statement of faith right there. It's a statement of faith without any basis in the past for proof. Where we have the cross that happened in the past and know that, that, that already for us we've been saved from the punishment of sin and because of the Holy Spirit we've already been given power over sin. And so we await the removal of the presence of sin in the future. But, but we have God already acting in our, pra, our past. And just to say, things they're, they're just going to get better. There's nothing in the past that you can point to and, and base that off of. It's a complete act of, of faith or statement of faith. The other response I get is, this is just the way it is. Now, we can do our best to curb this. We can do our best to try to slow this down. But this is just the way it is. There's no hope. The reality is, is if, if you were in Christ, we have a hope. We have a righteous judge. It's not us, but we have a righteous judge. And we, we have a redeemer, and we have a restorer. We have a hope, and our world needs that hope. You know, Bill Ingvall talks about wearing signs on, or hanging signs on people's necks. What, what if the sign that people looked at us and saw written across the Christian was hope? Second thing is, is repentance. You know, Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he pulls out things that we restrict uh, as, as sin to physical activities, and he includes what happens in the human heart into that as sin. So, for, for example, adultery. If you have heard it said that if, if you uh, uh, sleep with another man's wife, that's adultery. But I say that even if you look at a woman with a desire for her, he expands the definition of adultery to include not just the physical activity, but also the inward motive. And he does this with murder as well. The reality is, is most of us probably haven't reached out our hands and taken somebody's physical life from them. But how many of us, with our attitudes and our words, have reached out and just executed people? We have acted like judges and we've looked at one another and we've said evil and good and evil and good and we've, we, we've condemned people or exonerated people because of our opinions of them. And we were never meant to have that responsibility. Maybe for some of us this morning we need to examine the ways in which we have judged people 
and recognize that's not our responsibility and to hand that over back to God and ask for forgiveness for the ways that we've judged people? What if the sign that people saw hanging around the Christian's necks was humble, repentant? Lastly, as far as action, prayer. When we stop judging someone and start praying for them, two things can happen. One, God can reach out to them and begin to do his thing in their life. But two, we are changed by God. Our hearts are changed by God. We become more like Jesus when we pray for someone rather than judging that person. This is Pride Month. You go to certain parts of, uh, of Dayton, like the Oregon District, or you go to parts of Cincinnati or Columbus, you see this put on display. You see a, a lifestyle that's being preached and proclaimed as good and, and helpful and beneficial for people, but the reality is it's often detrimental, destructive, and not what God intended. But the question is, is when we experience things like that and we in, interact with people, are we judging what they're doing or are we judging the person? And are we labeling them, you're evil? Instead of the actions. And, and by so doing, do we prevent ourselves from seeing them as God sees them? We've already made up our minds about them. Are there people who are unredeemable to you? Are there people who are too far gone for you? See, to begin to, to stop judging people and begin to start praying for people can change them and it can change us. I'll close with this. Well, I, I totally did not go shorter at all. Uh, every week, I mentioned this at the beginning in announcements, on Saturdays at 9 a.m. in the connecting room downstairs, uh, same room on Sundays at, at 9.30, there's a time for prayer. Right? And, and uh, we've been doing this for a few weeks now, and not very many people show up, but that's okay. It's open, and you know that now. But what if you spent some time now and identified the people in your life that are adrift? Oftentimes, we talk about um, people who aren't Christians as lost. I don't think that's a, a, a great term. I think adrift, to, to recognize that, and, and people would even admit to this, that they feel adrift in life, that they're not anchored, they're not moored, they're not connected to anything foundational or real or solid or eternal because they're not connected to Jesus. If we identified the people in our life who are adrift and began to intentionally pray for them regularly, and what if we took that list and gathered with another group of Christians who had their lists, and what if corporately we began to pray for them? Pray how we would reach out to them. Pray for our own boldness in proclaiming the truth to them in love. What could happen if when people looked at us, they could see people of prayer? What difference would that make in the world? Uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, We're looking at Psalm 103 and seeing how you treat us. Seeing the lengths that you have gone to. If you treated us according to what we deserved, we would not be in existence. If you treated us the way we treat one another, we wouldn't be around. Your human existence would be a memory. But you didn't treat us that way. You loved us far greater. 
And instead of making us die, you came and died. Lord Jesus, you are the righteous judge we need. You are the redeemer we need. We are, you are the restorer that we need. And we, we get to have a relationship with you because of what you've done to make that happen. I pray that we would be a people of hope and a people of repentance and a people of prayer. Would you change us and, and shape us and help us to look more like you, Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen.